I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. One of the longest-running classic TV sitcoms is My Three Sons, which aired on ABC from 1960 to 1965, and then switched networks to CBS, where it aired until 1972. Film star Fred McMurray was lured to the show because of a special production arrangement, which happens to be discussed in this podcast. He plays widower Steve Douglas, who is raising his, you got it, three sons, with the help of his father-in-law and later the boy's great-uncle. As time went on, wives, a stepdaughter, and most notably in the case of this podcast, an adopted son were added. Barry Livingston played that son, Ernie, and in the following conversation, he looks at the show, what it was like growing up over the course of the eight years he was involved, adapting to life afterwards, and avoiding the so-called child actor curse. His acting career, we're happy to say, is still flourishing. One thing I'm always curious about is, so many years later, does it amaze you still, or is it just old news at this point, that it's still a subject, that people still want to talk to you about this show that aired so many years ago? Well, it's a great show. I mean, you know, quality is uh, is usually last, and uh, it had great people involved, McMurray and all that, so, you know, that stands to reason people keep rediscovering it. Absolutely. What's your feeling about it, though, all these years later? When you hear the, My Three Sons, what, what comes to your mind? Um, well, fun, family, um, you know, um, the 60s, which was a far different era than uh, what we're living in now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, yeah, there, there were some downsides. I mean, it, it, you know, back in the day, it, it certainly started to run against the grain of what popular culture was was starting to turn into. But that said, you know, it, it had its place in time and was quite a relevant show in its day. It was maybe one of the first very popular shows that depicted a single parent trying to raise three kids. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it was it was sort of ahead of its time. But, yeah, it, it was dealt with in a very lighthearted way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, yesterday I spoke to Christopher Knight from The Brady Bunch. Uh-huh. We did an interview, and he pointed out an interesting thing. It's like the Brady's ran against the grain as well, because by the time that show went off the air, it was going up against things like All in the Family and MASH and Sanford and Son. And Well, that's not true. I mean, to some – yeah, it's probably true, but we we actually bore the brunt of that probably a little more than they did because our show went off in 72 right as there was a whole zeitgeist happening at CBS where Fred Silverman, who was the program chief, said, cut all that – you know, that corny, you know, middle America, you know, everything that, that seemed to be Gomer Pilish. The rural uh, purge, wasn't it? <laughs> and all new wave was, was all in the family. And by 70, yeah, and that was 72. So we really were, were you know, butting heads with what was the, the new, the new wave in TV. By 74, when whatever Brady Bunch came along, or I guess it was on then. Yeah, they probably, they probably, Pretty much had the same problems. Yeah, because they ended in seventy four. Yeah, they ended in seventy four. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I was thinking of Happy Days. I just saw something about Happy Days that was seventy four. Came on, so right. yeah, Brady Bunch. There was definitely. But that's interesting because you're talking about that whole rural purge thing. I think right, they called it. I think at the time on CBS, <laughs> um, it was a purge. Yes, that Pettigo Junction, Gomer Pyle, oh, yeah. the was you know, Hee Haw, all those shows that were so popular and were still pretty popular. Uh, you know, they had deemed those shows you know, irrelevant and no longer in step with the times. And, eh, you know, I mean, time 
it's proven uh, whatever, you know, some, some, some were better than others. That's all. No, absolutely. But it, for you guys who were doing the show, and I know you were a kid at the time, but was it shocking, though, that a show that's, you know, doing well and, you know, very popular and that sort of thing, that a network could just turn around and say, yeah, we're still going to cancel you? It was shocking that it lasted that long. Okay. <laughs> that's <laughs> probably cool. true, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, being in the middle of it and just going, it's not my three sons anymore. It's not the, the original concept, which was a, a you know, bad bachelor, a widower, Fred McMurray, and an all-male household, which was kind of a novel thing. All three boys and William Frawley, who was the nanny. You know, by 1972, Fred had remarried. They had a little daughter. All of the other older sons moved out. It was just me and Tramp and Dodie. You know, it was, <laughs> it was kind of a travesty of, of what the show what the strength of the show was originally it just morphed into some of the other kind of thing that we all were going along with, but knew it wasn't quite as strong as the original concept, but you know, yeah, it was time, you know, we were all uh, 12 years in just going, you know, how much, how many more storylines are there at this point that you can have Fred solving all the boys problems when they're all adults, you know, it just didn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Fair enough. You know, so maybe the, that that particular purge may not have been a bad thing, <laughs> given the nature of the well, show. Well, yeah, again, I mean, it was, it was. Uh, I guess, you know, we would have gone another year or so had they let us just because it was, it was work. It was, you know, in our minds, it was still, we knew it was very popular. I think it was still in the top 20, 25, something like that when it got canceled. Uh, but. Yeah, Fred was getting older, and uh, although <laughs> I think I'm older than him now at the time that the show was canceled. <laughs> yeah, so, funny, isn't it? Everything, everything's relative. He seemed very old at the time. To me. <laughs> I, I don't, I but that didn't happen to you. Today. See, you're still young. <laughs> uh, exactly. I, that hasn't happened, so I don't know what, what that was all about. Okay. But it was funny because, yeah, he was probably, uh, I think, 50 when the show came out. He was 62, 63 when the show ended. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, it was it was um, time for all of us to move on, and uh, we did. Right. No, absolutely. But for you, you know, for you know, we talk about the fact that the show ran for twelve years. For you personally, I mean, given the the age gap span you were at that time, how impactful was? That? I mean, because that was your whole life for twelve. I mean, I'm not saying it's your whole life, but you know what I mean. It was an important part of your life yeah. for a dozen years. When you're going from childhood to teenager and that sort of thing, what was that like? I mean, to have that experience of sort of growing up while this show is is on the air. Well, again, it was you know, and I, I was on it. Eight years, actually. I I was the adopted son, right, so I came right. in in the fourth year. Uh, but if you know, I felt like twelve years because I was on the set a lot because my older brother Stan played Chip. So I was, you know, I knew everybody. They knew me. I was already a, a regular, a recurring character on the Ozzy and Harriet show. So you know, they were aware of me professionally and personally. So I was around a lot. So yes, twelve years is probably not not totally incorrect, but it it was. Yeah, initially it was it was right in the pocket, you know. I mean, we were a show that some somewhat reflected Middle America, and and it felt fun, and uh, you know, being there with my brother, and everybody was having a great time, and you know, getting uh, you know the the fame and fortune that comes with being on a TV series is is quite nice. Oh yeah. Um. So, but you know, as it sort of evolved, and by the time the Beatles came out, and Certainly by 67, when Psychedelia and the Jefferson Airplane and drugs and everything became much more, much more, uh, you know, percolated towards the top of everyone's 
you know, got a do list as a teenager, not everyone, you know, get nailed for that, but a lot of people uh, were, were looking for alternative lifestyles. And so my three sons did not reflect that. And even myself, you know, I was, I went back to public school. I was totally aware of what was happening in the world, at least here in North Hollywood, where I grew up. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, I was, I was hip to that and, and that's where it started to rub me, you know, the wrong way that the image that I was projecting on that show, I knew it was a character. I had to deal with that monkey on my, when I would go back to public school, because, you know, kids were rebelling against authority and kids were, were, were calling out hypocrisy and kids were, you know, that, that was the sign of the times to, to challenge the man. And I sort of became for a while in my mind, anyway, the poster boy for that, that image that people were rebelling against, you know? Uh, so, you know, but in personally, you know, I, I had to find my, my way through that in high school and navigate some you know, difficult challenges with kids thinking you're somebody like they see on TV and then they discover in reality, you're not. So, um, you know, every actor has to deal with that at some level, but as a teenager, it's a little more challenging. Oh, sure. You know, absolutely. Because it's one thing to project, you know, you, you spend years crafting this character and the show gets crafted, all that stuff. And like, you know, it's not real. And, and then suddenly you're dealing with people who are like, all they know from you from is that. So that's good. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Well, we, we battled long and hard and, and lost the battle most often, more than not, trying to go, can we grow our hair long? Uh, can we not wear plaid shirts every day of the week? Can we wear paisley? Can we wear polka dots? You know, like <laughs> like kids are wearing in school and bell-bottom jeans. And, you know, those were just superficial things that we were going, at least can we sort of dress like the people that we're, we know personally in our lives? You know, kids our age, uh, you know, um, it, you know, that battle was was sort of, you know, pushed probably by Don Grady and Stan and me to to some degree. And, you know, they they relented a little bit. But I, I think in the in the long view of things, they they kind of thought the second you start adhering to what the culture, everything looks like in that one particular moment it dates the show. Yeah. It just, it just puts a stamp on it that, that, that in the future, if anyone looks at it, they go, Oh, you know, this was from the six. Oh, this is from the seventies. So, you know, everyone's got long hair and bell bottoms and sort of like what the Brady bunch looked like. Um, you know, they, they resisted that. And in a strange way, I think it was a smart decision in retrospect because we didn't like it, but we went as an adult looking at it from a producer standpoint, it, it, it takes the show out of, being quite so dated it doesn't look quite so you know attached to one particular era and so it's more universal you know plain and simple hey look i i remember a story that on the original star trek for instance william shatner wanted to grow his sideburns and gene roddenberry the creator <laughs> of the show would say you can't do that because it's going to make the show look like it came out of a certain time period rather than being That's said right. in the future. And you know what? He's absolutely right because there are some episodes where Roddenberry wasn't as involved in Shatner's sideburns all longer, and it looks completely yeah. ridiculous. Well, what what really dates the series, as far as I can see every time I look at it, is the music. You can do nothing about the music. The music, you know, if you look at a Stephen Cannell show, Hunter, you know, from whatever that was, 70s, 80s, or Heart to Heart, you know, it's got that, it's got that weird synthesized yeah. vibe. And immediately it takes you 
out of like, oh, this is this is some relevant contemporary thing. My three sons, oddly enough, defied that because they had some real quirky soundtrack. It was like a harmonica, like doing kind of little fills, and it wasn't like you know a, a strobing, throbbing synthesizer in the background and Miami Vice and you know all of the Giorgio Moroder score kind of ripoffs that they were putting in every cop show and Simon and Simon and you know even even the, the, the sitcoms in the era had a certain kind of feel and look um, and but it, musically that's what always dates something you know and you, there's probably no way around it if you took a, whatever you know Brady Bunch and put a contemporary soundtrack to it you know Blink 182 would probably be so whacked out and weird to, you know but but uh, you know that that to me is what what makes it interesting I guess they're all time capsules sure. Sure, absolutely. For you, you know, you talked about going to high school and stuff and dealing with the image that people had of you. But what was it like to be on a show for eight years and then suddenly you don't have that show anymore? I mean, was it a struggle to find – I know you did some other work and stuff. You did other acting and all. But was it a struggle to do that acting or because everyone perceived you as Um, Ernie? Well, you know, it was was both. It was in my mind. I had overcome that – thing that I was thought I would be encountering, which is stereo being stereotyped. Uh, but then, you know, there would be some resistance from the industry, um, probably more so now than now what, you know, kids that are do well on a TV series, a lot of times transition into some other projects. I, you know, I was very lucky. I, I, I almost immediately kind of jumped into a couple of real high profile projects and, um, one being you're a good man, Charlie Brown, playing Linus, and did right. that for Hallmark Hall of Fame, and that was a you know, big hit Broadway musical, off Broadway, I guess it was. Um, so you know, I immediately kind of had to do something way different, sing and dance, and play a you know a cartoon character. Um, and I did a couple of other projects that I think fairly quickly established me beyond my three sons, as at least in the producers and casting community, that that oh you know he he's has something else to offer other than being, being Ernie. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I was aware of it. I wanted to address it. I did, you know, the smart thing I think at the time, which was get into a a good acting class, uh, studied with some very pretty heavyweight people back in the day, Harold Thurman, who was founded the group theater. I don't know if you're familiar with some of these people, but certainly Martin Landau, uh, with Marty for a while and, uh, studied with, you know, I was exposed to other people. Marcel Marceau came to our class, oh, classes wow. and taught, um, you know, well, Stella Adler. Uh, you know, there were there were people that I was being exposed to a certain type of acting authenticity. And so that's what I aspired to. And, you know, uh, got lucky and got into the series after My Three Sons called Sons and Daughters. Didn't right. last very long, but still it was, you know, it was a prestigious show on CBS. Um and you know, then I wanted to really follow my dream, which was to do theater. And I went to New York and very quickly got into a big Broadway production. So, you know, in, in, in my mind, I was moving forward, you know, wasn't just stuck in, um, you know, in, in the, the past, which right. is, that was really paramount in my mind to put that behind me as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, not to put it down and not disparage it in any way. Uh, even then I kind of went, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to rail on this to try to make it seem like it was a big, you know, crappy thing that I was involved with for eight oh, years, no. which a lot of people did. They they had to sort of put down their previous work in order to 
go, oh, I'm I'm this now. Don't ever talk about that. I'm this. Right. I I, I don't know. I never never felt that that was necessary. Um, but you know, I was keenly aware of. Let's move. Let's let's shift the conversation to other things as well. Oh, so, sure. um You know, that was that was uh, the challenge. And uh, and, and again, I mean, it wasn't wasn't a smooth, unemotional uh, transition. You know, um, some of it was frustrating because yeah, I was getting to read for a lot of things, and I think some of the reasons I was being rejected was because I had you know this. The, the image of Ernie in their mind so that I couldn't overcome no matter what. Right. So that was frustrating. Uh, but I was getting shots. I was getting opportunities. And that's all you can really ask for in life is, is opportunities. Yeah, no, absolutely. What you make of them is, uh, is up to you. You know what's funny is these days, they would be desperate for that kind of identification. Uh, <laughs> you know, back then, everyone was so afraid, like, oh, no, they're only going to see Ernie. I remember George Reeves was in uh, From Here to Eternity, I think it was. And he was so identified with Superman that when his scene, when he showed up on screen in a preview, everyone said, Superman! And the producers freaked out and cut his part down to nothing, basically. Today, yeah. they'd want it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it, that, that onus, that stigma of being really closely associated with a, a you know, a, an iconic character uh, doesn't, doesn't, it's not quite as bad. I mean, Henry Winkler is a perfect example. You know, he, he couldn't have gotten bigger than the Fonz. Right. But, you know, he's transitioned into some pretty great projects and, and on screen as an actor, he also has been successful as a producer as well. But, but, you know, I think he was nominated for something this year. He won an Emmy last more. year for uh, Barry on HBO. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, he's, you know, he's a perfect example of a guy that, that, Everyone will always go back to the Fonz, as everyone will always go back to Ernie. For me, you know, on my tombstone, it'll say, "Here lies Ernie." You know, see <laughs> back to the tombstone for other credits. You right. know, so that's uh, that's the way I think it's going to be. <laughs> that's the way I'll be laid to rest. I am curious about working with Fred McMurray, because the guy had what mm -hmm. I thought was a fairly unique working relationship in the sense that, or arrangement rather. He would work for what, like three weeks or a month or something for the season and shoot all his stuff? No, he was there for probably about six weeks at the start of production and then um, maybe six to eight weeks even. And they would shoot all of his scenes, the masters and every, you know, every episode and just his close up just to focus exclusively production wise on Fred when he was there. And they would skip all the matching close ups and two shots that would in the editing room, once you stitch it all together, we would we would shoot those after he left, and you would be doing your your offstage dialogue, uh, you know, or somebody on an Apple box, a woman would be reading his lines <laughs> off camera, and you'd be you know pretending it's dad. And so when you edit it all together, it looked like it was shot at the same time. So yeah, he would work for about six seven weeks, and then. And our total shooting schedule was probably seven, eight months, something like that. So he would come back at the very end of our, our time there and uh, come back for another three, four weeks. So, you know, all in all, he was there for about two and a half months out of uh, maybe an eight-month shooting schedule. And, you know, he would come back to just to tie up all the loose ends that they skipped shots or added things or whatever. So, you know, he, he was – that was a great, sweet deal for him. And, <laughs> and he went home at 5 o'clock every day, too. So uh, – yes. You know, that was how they got a star of his magnitude to even commit to being in a series at the beginning. I think the story I heard is that he was golfing with Robert Young, who is on Father Knows Best. And, you know, they were discussing 
television work and and I think Robert Young said don't ever you know don't ever do what I did sign a contract where you're there because you're you never see your family you're at the studio 15 hours a day uh, you know for nine months out of the year you're you know he said it's 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 hard it's a, it's a real grind and so um you know I think Fred took him at his word and so when they approached him with this idea of my three sons I think he initially balked and then they came up with this concept of yeah, look, we'll just shoot you out, you know, do all your stuff, work out of four, five, six, seven episodes a day if it takes that, which they did sometimes, just trying to get everything that we can get with you while you're there. And um, lo and behold, that was the McMurray method, and it stuck. How weird was it for you guys to be, like you said, talking to a woman standing on an Apple box uh, for Dad, when you're trying to have uh, this emotional connection and he's not there. I still have, yeah, I still have, you know, my, my, my I'm still fucked up. So what can I say? You know, <laughs> all those years talking to dad and it was really a woman standing <laughs> on an apple box. Uh, no, I, I, uh, you know, it was for us, it was no big deal. We just took it for granted. It's just the way they did things. Okay. Um, the older people, perhaps William Frawley, who was not used to working like that. It might have been uh, might have been a little more challenging, but I never heard him complain or William Demers. You know, they, they kind of entered it with their eyes wide open, and that's the way we did things. And uh, but again, probably not so much working with a with somebody standing on an apple box. It wasn't the actor you did your initial scene with. It was probably working out of five, six, seven storylines a day that you'd have to keep track of. What what is the <laughs> work we're doing yeah traditionally you're working on one episode and you're shooting that one episode at on monday you start and by tuesday of the following week you're you're um you know you're wrapping it up but it, it's all focused on on one um particular episode so yeah it was a little more challenging to go through to go through you know have to keep all that straight you know that that's that was very unorthodox and, and you know presented a lot of problems that you want to make sure you're you knew what was happening in the story oh yeah you know and for, and speaking of farley and, and demers i mean you guys obviously spent more time with them uh than you did with fred what was what right. was working relationship with them like i mean what was it like being with them well they were very similar but but very different they were they were kind of guys that both of them were hard nuts and they both grew up in the depression and both were kind of irish heavy well, Mitt Frawley was just a serious drinker, you know, an alcoholic, uh, and brought that onto the set with him, but not in an unpleasant way. <laughs> he was never abusive or angry, or he was always pretty jolly and funny. Okay. Uh, towards the end, he was he was kind of nodding off uh, sometimes in the middle of scenes. He would just oh, take a nap, <laughs> um, and he didn't didn't particularly like coming back from lunch because uh, in those days you could. We used to go to a restaurant that was right next to the studio, and and he could get as much cutty sark as he as he wanted. Nobody was brave enough to tell him to stop. So, uh, and then Demers was a teetotaler, probably a heavy drinker, back partier back in the day. But by the time he got to Sons, he was, you know, he was done. But I think that made him a little crankier, you know, yeah, sure. like that syndrome of, a, of an ex-alcoholic they they need to take the edge off uh, but he was never sharp with us he was never mean or, or you know he, he just had a cantankerous side to him that you you kind of went that's you know frawley had that but it was always wrapped in in a in laughter 
Mm. Uh, Demarest had similar kind of moods, but but they were a little darker. But they were both, you know, a lot of fun to be with. Really. You know, with William Farley, I remember that reading that uh, Desi Arnaz basically put it to him because he knew about his drinking problem and said, if you ever come to the set drunk, you're fired. And he yeah. never did, apparently. So it's interesting uh, that here is somebody who put what? Maybe, maybe did, I'm wrong. No, he, never <laughs> he never got caught. I think it's more like it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, it's just funny. Somebody would put that threat to you. You know, it's like, you come to the set drunk, forget hey, it. Hey, <laughs> somebody from Desi Arnaz, he had a pretty big drinking problem. Yeah. Himself, so, <laughs> well, uh, he had a lot of issues. <laughs> I, I, I guess as the boss, he had a life and ground rules. But I think he was uh, fairly, uh, you know, into, the, into, his, into his bottles as well. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> You know, so, so, so what, what's happening with you now though? I mean, what, are you working on any projects and what's going on? Uh, well, you know, and I'm kind of between projects, but I've, I've done a couple of really great films in the last couple, well, last year and I'm waiting for them to come out. One is called the silent natural, which is a story of baseball's first death superstar. I oh. think dummy Hoy, William dummy Hoy. It's a fantastic story. Wow. Um, it took, yeah, he's an amazing story. He's, um, you know, he played in major leagues, uh, fought his way up, you know, through all the prejudices of the time and people shunning him and, you know, the difficulty of even getting, getting a, a tryout was, you know, amazing. But I play the manager of the baseball team, the Oshkosh major league baseball team that finally gave him a break. Um, and he went on to play 13 seasons, still holds records. When you see umpires do hand signals for a strike, ball, out, safe, that was all devised for William Dummy Hoy. Really? Google it. Yep. It was it was because of him, because he couldn't hear it. Right. Um, so it's a fantastic story. And and Miles Barbie, who is a deaf actor, played him. Um, period piece takes place, let's say, in the late 1890s, um, in his entry into baseball. So it's it's great, you know. It has a lot of color, and I've got a great part as the manager of his, of, of uh, the team. And then there's another film I did called Notorious Nick, which oddly enough it's a similar in theme. It's about a one-armed true story about a one. And both these are true stories, but but Notorious Nick is about a, uh, a guy named Nick Newell who was a one-armed MMA fighter, mixed martial arts. Wow. Uh, uh, and he went on to be, win the championship in his division uh, in the UFC. Um, and again, you know, same scenario. He wasn't taken seriously. He was, you know, he, nobody ever thought he had a, a stood a chance to become a champion, certainly, or even have stand, win one bout, but he, uh, proved everybody wrong, went on to, uh, win the championship. And I play his, uh, actually his high school wrestling coach, which, eventually becomes his uh his his coach in in mixed martial arts as well because nobody would handle it because they didn't you know thought a guy with one arm you, you know why waste my time so right. so it's a great part again and and another great movie called notorious nick and then i've got a couple of uh i've got a recurring role in bosch the tv series on amazon uh, so i'll be making a coming up again in season six which i don't know when now but sometime in 2019 and, uh, and I've got a recurring role in, uh, in a show called uh, Are You Sleeping with uh, Octavia Spencer and uh, Aaron Paul. So I think that'll be on Hulu. Wow. Um, and I've got some, you know, some other little other films and Veronica Mars I did last year. And uh, 
losing track. That's enough, I guess. <laughs> There's got to be something exciting about the fact that all these years later and you're still acting, you're still being given the opportunity to do your thing. Well, that's all I asked for back in 1972. Just give me an opportunity. You know, get, don't don't just prejudge what I can or can't do and let me show you. You know, and uh, yes, I, I feel quite fortunate that I've gone this far and been allowed to participate in, in, in an industry that I love. And um, it's not without its frustrations and not without its times that you think you're, you're you know, going to go crazy, wait for the phone to ring. But uh, that said, I, I continue to get the call occasionally. And um, I continually <laughs> hopeful for that, that that continues to happen. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I want to be one of those people that I don't, I don't want to be forced into retirement. If I do retire, I want it to be my choice, not because I can't get work. Um, but so far, so good. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Seriously. That's great. You know, um, that's good. And congratulations. Cause there are a lot of people who weren't able to make that transition who weren't able to keep, especially kids, weren't able to keep their act together and continue their career into adulthood. And, you know, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I've had a normal life. I mean, really, I mean, I've been married, uh, it'll be 36 years wow. in February, this coming February. So, um, you know, I've had a great, great ride through life. You know, I've had, uh, to do a lot of things that uh, I've got to do professionally. And then personally, it's been a very satisfying uh, relationship with, uh, with with my wife and my family. And all those things come together to make you, uh, you know, satisfied and happy. And I, you know, not considering real awesome complaints, but what's the point? You know, it's, it's the, the good things that far outweighed the, the troubling. Our thanks to Barry Livingston for taking the time to talk with us. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please subscribe to the podcast, slip in a five-star review, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.